Welcome to Texas Ag Today, a daily look at the latest news in Texas agriculture. Texas Ag Today is produced by the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network, with the largest farm news team in the Lone Star State. Now here's the host of Texas Ag Today, Carrie Martin. Hello Texas, thank you for joining us for Texas Ag Today. I'm your host, Jessica Dommel, sitting in for Carrie Martin. I'm joined by the largest and most experienced farm news team in the Lone Star State, and we're standing by to bring you the latest news in Texas agriculture, from the piney woods of East Texas to the rocky ranges of the Trans-Pecos, and from the Panhandle all the way down to the Rio Grande Valley. Last month's brutal winter storm may have done a little early pest control on behalf of Texas High Plains sorghum. I'm James Hunt, and I'll have that story on Texas Ag Today. Evaluating flood risk across the state. I'm Tom Nicoletti, and I'll have that story on Texas Ag Today. U.S. agriculture is doing more with less. It's quite the success story in climate-smart farming. I'm Gary Joyner, and I'll have those details on Texas Ag Today. We'll have those stories, news from Washington, Texas wildlife news, and a complete look at the markets coming up. Farmers in parts of central Texas are planting corn now or gearing up to plant corn. For some, planting was delayed due to winter storm Uri in late February. Adam Owens, a field agronomist for Pioneer, says farmers in central Texas, say around Williamson County, usually begin planting around Valentine's Day on a good year. Due to that weather, we got delayed a little bit. How cold we got really impacted our soil temperatures, right? So we were really monitoring soil temps. You know, when they got down in the 20s there for a little bit and then stayed in the 30s for the majority of that week, it takes a long time to get from 30 degrees up to, you know, 50 degrees, which is the minimum soil temperature in which we need to have for planting corn. So that's kind of our magic number, 50 degree soil temps with a favorable five-day forecast. So it did impact us a little bit as far as when we could get started, but uh, soil temps really rebounded very nicely, but it's very important that we're checking our soil temperatures from about 9 to 11 a.m. because that offsets the cool part that we get from like in the mornings, if we take it right at like 6 or 7 a.m., we're still going to be working off that really cold conditions that we had or cooler conditions that we had during the evening time. And if we take it at 2 or 3 p.m. or up to about 6 or 7 p.m., those are our warmest readings of the day. So taking it between 9 and 11 is a really good average. That was Adam Owens, a pioneer field agronomist. The full-page rice cropping system has now been out for a full season, and Texas rice farmers have seen some promising results. Carrie Martin has the story. Charles Hermanson is the regional sales manager for Adama. He's based in College Station, Texas, and says 2020 was a great year for the new system. Most every rice grower I've spoken with over the course of the last year was certainly pleased with the new technology, what it looked like, and just you know proud to be able to grow something that actually lived up to the hype and lived up to the, the opportunity that was behind it. And the 2021 growing season should be even better. Uh, so in the first year of really commercially seeing that full-page technology, we feel like we were able to learn a ton to relay to the growers, to relay to the marketplace about how to better steward and use that technology and how to get the most out of it. Charles Hermanson with with Adama. 
I'm Kerry Martin on the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. The freeze in late February caused millions of dollars in damages to Texas agriculture. It also killed off some crop pests. James Hunt reports from Amarillo. Now, I definitely don't want to overplay this bit of news, but the word coming out of South Texas is those frigid temperatures in mid-February really took a toll on the sugarcane aphid. No, the cold did not wipe out sorghum's nemesis completely, but Dr. Brent Bean of the Sorghum Checkoff says in the immediate aftermath of the winter storm, entomologists in the southern part of the state reported difficulty finding any aphids. Does that mean we're not going to have a sugarcane aphid problem here? I don't think it means that necessarily, but what it probably means is that it should slow down at least the progression of the aphids. So at some point, they're going to start building back up in South Texas and then begin to kind of move this way. But that's been delayed, and so that's a good thing. In the year since the aphid first made its presence known in Texas High Plains fields, its annual return has typically begun reaching treatable levels in early to mid-August. And Dr. Bean says it could be significant if this setback the aphid has suffered results in even a two-week postponement. That gives that sorghum biscuit plant a chance to get further along in its maturity, which is a good thing because the later in maturity the sorghum is, really the better it's able to withstand the sugarcane aphid and not have a yield loss. And then if you do have to spray, you're probably just going to have to spray the one time before that sorghum is mature. Of course, as we've discussed before, the sugarcane aphid threat has already been diminished by the growing number of pesticides and aphid-tolerant hybrids. On another weather subject that certainly relates to our continued dry conditions, Dr. Bean urges sorghum farmers, even if you normally plant in June, consider going earlier if you get the opportunity. If you end up with a good rain, you know, we'll say May 20th, and you, know, you got good moisture, soil temperatures are 60 degrees plus, then hey, I'd go ahead and plant. I'm James Hunt on the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. How is flood risk in Texas evaluated? Tom Nicoletti talks to Kathleen Jackson from the Texas Water Development Board. Today I continue my conversation with Kathleen Jackson with the Texas Water Development Board about the establishment of the first ever regional flood planning groups in Texas. Part of the process is to evaluate uh, flood risk across the state and work between communities uh, that uh, will allow to identify state flood plan projects and uh, potential funding through the Flood Infrastructure Fund. Talk about that. So, Tom, I think you hit the nail on the head when you've kind of honed in on flood risk. And, you know, what the board did kind of in preparation for, you know, starting this whole regional flood planning, state flood planning process is we did a listening tour across the state. And what we definitely heard from people was that, you know, in many instances, the maps, the information that was kind of available in terms of where the flood risks existed were extremely outdated. In some parts of Texas, they didn't even exist. And so moving forward, it was very important that we kind of had three pillars of the process. One is improved flood mapping, the better the data the better the science, the better the science, the better the policy. So going in and getting updated elevation data, doing the hydraulic modeling, and bringing that all together so that the flood planning groups would have good information to be able to use in their decision-making. Secondly, the other pillar is planning through the regional planning groups, recognizing that we've got to do this differently than we've done in the past. Before an area flooded, we went back after the fact and said, you know, what can we do to maybe correct that existing problem? Now we understand that we need to be looking forward as well and recognizing that 
Texas is is growing and that the topography is changing. And so comprehending not only what has existed in the past, but planning for the future in terms of mitigating the risk. And then the third element, of course, is mitigation. And as you mentioned, what projects or strategies do these groups want to put together and recommend, again, for the local leadership to be able to move forward and to be able to execute. But it all centers around identifying what that risk is and That will be the work of these regional flood planning groups. They'll do flood hazard analysis, basically determining the location and the frequency of flooding. They'll do exposure analysis to determine who might be harmed. And then uh, vulnerability analysis to kind of identify critical facilities and communities and, and who's in harm's way. On our next and final program with Kathleen Jackson of the Texas Water Development Board, we will talk about moving forward with the flood planning groups. I'm Tom Nicoletti with the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. U.S. agriculture is doing more with less sustainably. Gary Joyner has more. U.S. farmers and ranchers have long been at the forefront of climate-smart farming. They use scientific solutions, technology, and innovations to grow crops and care for livestock. By doing so, they protect soil and water, efficiently manage manure, and produce clean and renewable energy. They also capture carbon and improve sustainability. It's quite the success story. Over the past two generations, American farmers and ranchers have increased productivity by 287 all while using the same resources. Doing more with less is an understatement. The carbon footprint of U.S. agriculture is also shrinking. Agriculture accounts for about 10% of total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. That's far less than transportation, electricity generation, and industry sectors. And its footprint could soon be even less. Officials say with increased investment in agricultural research, new frontier technologies can be developed to capture more carbon in croplands, forests, and grasslands. Net zero emissions in some sectors of agriculture are a real possibility. America's farmers and ranchers are part of the climate solution, working hard every day in a sustainable way. I'm Gary Joyner in Waco. U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack addressed attendees of the virtual Commodity Classic event Friday. Speaking with the National Association of Farm Broadcasting President Gail Cunningham, Vilsack fielded questions, including those on the next farm bill. Well, I tell you, Gail, before we craft the next farm bill, I think we have to work between now and, say, the next year or two to take a look at what we need to do to create more, better and newer markets and fairer markets. And that is going to help to inform, in part, what a farm bill ought to include. So, for example, if we are able to establish some kind of carbon bank that's designed for and implemented for farmers and benefiting farmers, we do this, I I suspect, in a way that we begin that process. We provide sufficient resources to get it started, but also to learn from the early experiences of that, what works and what doesn't work. Vilsack says, among other things, the focus of USDA over the next four years will be on building and expanding markets for producers. I want them to know that we're dedicated at USDA to trying to figure out how we can create better opportunities, more markets, better opportunity, better markets, newer markets, fairer markets, all of which I think will, will benefit producers across the board. Uh, and so I look forward to continuing working with all of you. That was U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Bilsack. How can the bacterial disease leptospirosis affect horses? Texas veterinarian Dr. Bob Judd has more on that coming up next 
right here on Texas Ag Today. Texas Farm Bureau Insurance has protected fellow Texans with auto, home, health, and life insurance since 1952. With more than 260,000 square miles of land and 27 million people, that's a lot to cover. Whether you're wrangling cattle or wrangling kids, we're proud to protect Texans in all Texan ways of life. Visit Texas Farm Bureau Insurance today at tfbinsurance.com to get insurance for Texans by Texans. Coverage and discounts are subject to qualifications and policy terms and may vary by situation. We're keeping you informed on everything happening in Texas agriculture on Texas Ag Today. Drinking contaminated water can lead to a bacterial disease that can affect horses' eyes. Dr. Bob Judd has that report. We routinely vaccinate cattle and dogs to prevent leptospirosis, but the disease can also infect horses. We do not vaccinate horses routinely as there is no FDA-approved vaccine, although some have used cattle vaccines in horses. Dr. Ann Dwyer indicates in the horse publication that usually the acute disease is very mild unless abortion or kidney disease occurs. The other main concern is the effect the infection has on the horse's eyes. Once exposed, which usually occurs from drinking contaminated water, the bacteria spreads rapidly throughout the horse's body, including the eyes, and the horse's body reacts to the infection, causing inflammation in the eyes. Dr. Dwyer indicates the ocular manifestation of the disease is the most serious consequence of lepto-infection in horses, as over 60% of the equine recurrent uveitis cases are related to lepto-infection. Equine recurrent uveitis, or ERU, is a disease that causes an inflamed, painful eye that is sensitive to light and causes the horse to squint the eye due to pain. Lots of equine diseases can look the same, so it is important to call your vet if these symptoms develop, as treatments vary depending on the actual cause of the disease. Simply instilling an antibiotic ointment in the eye is not an effective treatment, and a delay in treatment can increase the chance of blindness. Appaloosas and warm bloods are genetically predisposed to ERU, but all horses living in temperate climates are at risk for developing leptospirosis. After infection, Dr. Dwyer indicates it could take months to years after infection before an eye problem develops. I'm Dr. Bob Judd, and this is the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. Instead of sitting at home this summer, Texas teens can instead get out in nature and learn more about wildlife species and natural resources. Texas Brigades is now accepting applications for its eight statewide summer camps. The five-day hands-on camps are open to youth ages 13 to 17. Susanna Sathoff, program manager, says two of the camps are focused on white-tailed deer. We have a North Texas and a South Texas one, and it's going to be the same for our bobwhite quail. We also have a Rolling Plains and a South Texas bobwhite quail. We have a coastal one, which kind of focuses on like the coastal aquatic life. We have a waterfowl, and then we also have a ranch one, which focuses more on like the day-to-day activities and ranch life. Elizabeth Brogan, program manager, says they bring in professionals who will teach students many things, including public speaking. And so in the case of a bobwhite brigade, yes, we focus a lot on the northern bobwhite and like the habitat and ecology, basic habitat functions specific to the bobwhite. But on top of that, we bring in a lot of media presence, how to public speak, how to write, different leadership and team building. So it's just an avenue to get that information to the kids. 
Dominique Meyer, program manager, said students won't just be sitting in a classroom all day. With coastal brigades, they take them out on the bay in a boat. They get to work with professionals like that. So it's not just sitting in a classroom, writing in a notebook. It is a lot, a lot of fun. And we know by hands-on learning, it will stick with you for longer. The deadline to apply for Texas Brigade's summer camps is Monday, March 15th. You can apply, donate, and apply to volunteer at texasbrigades.org. Cotton fell sharply today, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Supply and Demand Estimates report led to mixed reactions in the grain markets. We'll take a look at the livestock, cotton, grain, energy, and financial markets coming up next. Keep it here on Texas Ag Today. Each year, National Ag Day celebrates the important contributions of our country's farms and farm families. Join the Agriculture Council of America and our esteemed industry partners on March 23rd as we thank America's farmers for all they provide to our nation and the world. Food brings everyone to the table. Thanks to American Ag. Learn more about Ag Day and the events for March 23rd at agday.org. We're giving you the market information you need on Texas Ag Today. The U.S. Department of Agriculture released its monthly World Supply and Demand Estimates Report, or WASDE, on Tuesday. It prompted changes in the market. In that WASDE report, first quarter beef production was raised from last month as lower expected fed cattle slaughter is more than offset by higher first half non-fed cattle slaughter. Live cattle for April were up 30 cents Tuesday to 119.65. Live cattle for June up 50 cents at 119.65. Live cattle for August up 37 cents to 118.22. Feeder cattle for March closed out Tuesday up $1.80 to $137.15. Feeder cattle for April up $2.40 to $142.07. Feeder cattle for May up $1.90 to $146.97. Box beef prices are higher. Choice up $1.36 to $232.44. Select up Tuesday $2 to $225.13 with a movement of 69 loads. Now let's check the livestock auctions. We're walking the pens with Larry Marble. When you hear my cowboy crew riding hard, they're headed down to Beeville to talk to Rodney Butler from Beeville Livestock about the sale he had this last Friday. Rodney Butler, tell us about it. How many noses did you count? Oh, uh, we had some good cattle and they sold good Friday. We we had a good sale, sir. Let's walk the pins. All right, we had 423 head of cattle, four horses, and six sheep and goats. Your two to three hundred pound steers, dollar fifty-seven to dollar eighty-five. Heifers, a dollar thirty-three to a dollar fifty-one. Your three hundred to four hundred pound steers, a dollar fifty-three to a dollar eighty. Heifers, a dollar twenty-nine to a dollar forty-nine. Your 400 to 500 pound steers, a dollar 47 to a dollar 72. Heifers, a dollar 31 to a dollar 63. Your 500 to 600 pound steers, a dollar 30 to a dollar 58. Heifers, a dollar 24 to a dollar 36. Your 600 to 700 pound steers, a dollar 27 to a dollar 36. Heifers, a dollar 15 to a dollar 42. And your 700 to 800 pound steers were a dollar 14 to a dollar 21. And heifers were 94 to a dollar 10. Our packer cows were steady. They brought anywhere from 33 to 71 cents. Bulls brought from 57 to 81. 
uh, young stalker cows brought anywhere from 41 to 67 with some bred cows dollaring out around that 910. And we didn't have any pairs and horses brought anywhere from a 150 to 360 bucks, sir. Well, what do we know for this next week? Uh, I know of several bunches of cattle coming this next week, so I'm sure we'll have another good run probably around four or four and a quarter again, sir. Tell everybody how to contact you in Beeville. Yeah, y'all can reach me here at Sailborn at 361-358-1727 or call me on my mobile, 645-5002. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you and take care. Neighbor, that's it for today's edition of Walking the Pins. I'm your host, Larry Marble. You've been listening to us on the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. USDA has lowered the 2021 pork production forecast on a slower pace of hog slaughter. Higher expected carcass weights are expected to tamper the decline in the first half of the year. Lean hogs for April up $1.05 Tuesday to $88.35. Lean hogs for May up $1.10 at $90.77. The Tuesday WASD report lowered the 2021 milk production forecast slightly from last month. Higher than expected cow inventory is more than offset by slower growth in milk per cow. That sent milk prices up slightly. Class 3 milk for March Tuesday up a nickel at 1640 a hundredweight. Class 3 milk for April up 7 cents at 1782 a hundredweight. USDA lowered the 2020-2021 cotton forecast Tuesday on lower production, consumption, and ending stocks. Cotton for May was down 400 points Tuesday to 84.32. Cotton for December down 394 points Tuesday to 81.40. And the supply and demand outlook for the 2020-2021 U.S. wheat crop is mostly unchanged this month. Hard red winter wheat for July was at 4.5 Tuesday to 6.32. USDA made no changes to the 2020-2021 U.S. corn supply and use outlook from last month in its report Tuesday. Corn for September up two and a half at 502 and three quarters. Natural gas for April down a penny at 265. Crude oil for April down a dollar three to 6402 a barrel. Looking at the financial markets, the Dow closed 200 points higher Tuesday at 32,002. The Nasdaq closed up 506 points to 13,115. The S&P 500 was up 73 points to 3,894. That wraps up our look at the markets, and that wraps up this edition of Texas Ag Today. Remember, we'll be right here next time to bring you the latest news in Texas agriculture. I'm Jessica Domol, in for Carrie Martin. I hope to see you then. Thanks for listening to Texas Ag Today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. For more Texas Ag news and information, check out our website at texasfarmbureau.org or tfbradio.com. Texas Ag Today is a production of the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network.